Thanks, Carson. And good morning. Good morning. Uh, it is good to see you. Thanks for being at our 930 service. Uh, I'm glad you're joining us. It's always a joy uh, to be together uh, in worship. And as Carson just prayed, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been in a series this fall titled Encountering Jesus. Uh, we're nearing the end of this series. I'm going to preach today. And then next week, Pastor Timothy is going to close the series. And we will begin a new sermon series on December 3rd uh, for Advent titled The Songs of Christmas. Uh, we're going to be studying the songs of Luke's gospel in chapters 1 and 2. This morning, we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus performing his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And the, the first few chapters of the Gospel of John echo the first book of the Bible, Genesis. John chapter 1 starts with, In the beginning was the Word, echoing Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning God created. And then our text this morning in John chapter 2, it, it showcases a wedding, a marriage celebration, much like Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis, we behold God creating the world. In John's Gospel, we behold Jesus recreating and ushering in God's new world, his new creation. And so we're going to turn and read John chapter 2 this morning to understand Jesus' new creation. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's word in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word to us this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and speak to our spirits, that the word of God, which is living and active, might be alive in our minds and our hearts, that you might transform us because you have spoken. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you in this time. Speak, Lord Jesus, to us, we pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. If Jesus reappeared to us this morning, if Jesus were to just show up in this sanctuary this morning, what do you think Jesus would do to declare his glory? Maybe Jesus would baffle us with his wisdom, blow our minds with his knowledge and his teaching, and give us an incredible defense as to why he is the true God. 
Maybe you think Jesus would gather all the homeless and hungry of our city, bring them into the sanctuary and multiply this loaf of bread here on the table and feed everyone. Maybe he would create a thunderstorm and cause darkness to fall upon us and the earth to shake. If you read through the four Gospels of the New Testament, at differing times, Jesus does baffle the Pharisees with his wisdom. He does multiply loaves of bread and feed the 5,000, and he does cause darkness to fall upon the earth and for the earth to shake. But in our text this morning, John tells us that the way Jesus comes on stage to declare his glory and to let the world know he's the Messiah is by turning water into wine at a wedding. John chapter 2, verse 11, John says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Why in the world is Jesus' first miracle to cure a massive social embarrassment for a family who ran out of wine at a wedding? Why does Jesus turn 150 gallons of water into 700 bottles of the world's best Bordeaux? Former Duke University professor of English literature and novelist Reynolds Price reflected on this first miracle, and, and this is what he wrote. He said, why invent for the inaugural sign of Jesus' great career a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight? And then he writes, no one would have made this up. The Gospel of John was not a work of fiction. Rather, it was written by the hand of a clear-minded, thoughtful eyewitness to the acts and mind of Jesus. One reason John wrote this is because it's true. This was Jesus' first miracle. But to understand why this was the first miracle, we need to understand that when Jesus performed miracles, they were, as verse 11 says, signs. The, the, the function of a sign is to point to something else, right? If you're driving on the 147 freeway and you see the sign that says downtown Durham, the sign is nothing in and of itself, you don't stop and kind of gaze and marvel at the sign. It's pointing you to something. It's pointing you to the shops and the restaurants and the businesses and art venues and apartments and condos and neighborhoods that make up downtown Durham. The miracle of turning water into wine is pointing to a new world, to a new creation that Jesus will usher in. It's the world that the Old Testament prophets spoke about in places like Joel chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. God's people were looking for great wine because it meant a restored and renewed world. And wine, in particular, signified joy. Psalm 104, verse 15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of man. The new creation that Jesus ushers in is a world full of joy. It's a joyful world free from pain and sorrow. And joy can feel ever elusive. We all want joy, yet we live in a broken and tragic world, find ourselves often looking and longing 
yet without joy. This miracle reveals that Jesus offers true joy. And to understand this true joy, I, I want to ask two questions. Where is Jesus in this passage, and, and what is Jesus doing? So let's look first at where is Jesus. Verse 1 says, on the third day. We've got to stop there. On the third day. Right. Those at the wedding may not have understood the third day like we understand it. Right. We who know the life and the death of Jesus, we hear on the third day, and what rouses within us is, and he rose from the grave, right? John 2 is a third day, a, a third day story, a resurrection, new life, new world story. And Jesus is at a wedding. Of all the places that Jesus could appear and showcase his glory, he goes to a wedding party. Now, Rachel and I just celebrated our anniversary, November 3rd, 2012, is the day we got married, and it was an amazing day. All of our family and friends gathered together in a beautiful sanctuary in Birmingham, Alabama, and after the ceremony, everyone made their way to the club on top of the mountain. The sun was setting on a gorgeous 72-degree day, much like yesterday, and for hours, everyone ate good food, drank good drink, talked, and danced to this incredible Motown band. It was a great celebration. Well, weddings in the ancient Near East make big southern Alabama weddings look small. I mean, the weddings here in first century, they would last a whole week. Days, seven days of partying, and the whole city would be invited to attend. And so Jesus and his disciples are invited to this wedding, and Jesus goes. Now, don't miss this simple point. Jesus wasn't a recluse. Jesus wasn't a spiritual hermit hiding from the world. He wasn't unnaturally religious, removing himself from the world. Jesus is in the world, enjoying the world, while resisting the temptation and sin of the world. There's a normalcy about Jesus's life, a wholesomeness about Jesus's life that we would do well to imitate. Jesus and his disciples were invited to parties and to meals by people who were not Christians, and they enjoyed attending them. Christians can often and rightly at times get the reputation for being boring, uptight, stuck in the mud. This is one thing that kind of rubs me uh, as a pastor, perhaps because I used to think that's what it meant to be a Christian myself. But Jesus loved to have fun. Jesus laughed. He ate good food and drink, and he celebrated, and he loved going to parties. On January 19th, just two months from now, into the new year, Christ Central Church, we're going to have our 10-year anniversary party. And it's going to be awesome, and you should plan to attend. It's going to be an amazing time. And as I've been thinking about the past 10 years of all that God's done in our church, uh, one of my favorite memories and stories is what happened on our five-year anniversary. We were at, some of you were there, we were at the Rick House uh, event space downtown Durham, just a few blocks uh, from here near the Old Bulls ballpark. And we had sandwich board signs out on the sidewalks with our name and logo on them, helping point people where to go. And inside the Rick House, we had good food and drink. We told stories of God's faithfulness, and we danced till late in the night. And the following week, someone who I had become friends with at the downtown CrossFit gym asked me, hey, hey, Daniel, aren't you a pastor at Christ Central Church? 
And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, hey, I, I saw y'all sign on a Friday night out on the, on the sidewalk. And so I followed it, and I looked into the Rick house, and I saw hundreds of people celebrating and dancing. It seems like y'all have a pretty fun church. I think I might come check Christ Central out one Sunday pretty soon, and he did. Someone saw our sign, and they followed it to see a foretaste of what is coming in full in Jesus, a community celebrating and enjoying the party. And they were drawn into our community to check out Jesus and this gospel that we profess. Here at Christ Central, we say we want to live for the good and the flourishing of our city. One way we do this is by not being spiritual recluses. We love our city. We eat and enjoy places like the Salt Box and Monuts and Ideal Sandwich Shop and Little Bull. We go to Durham Bulls baseball games and BU Coffee Shop. We go to concerts at Sharp Nine and Motorco and Deepak. We throw parties and we get invited to parties. We invite people over for a meal and we go to people when they invite us over for meals. And we celebrate knowing that as we do, it is but a foretaste, a sign pointing to what one day will be more full. God's new world full of joy, all joy, free from pain and sorrow. Now, the second question I want us to ask to help us understand more fully this joy that Jesus offers is what is Jesus doing here? This one's going to be a little bit more lengthy than my first point. What is Jesus doing here? Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, can you imagine being at a wedding party and everybody's celebrating and they're having a blast and then all of a sudden there's no more food, there's no more drink, and only half the people get served. And the party would quickly move from celebration to complaining. Now, it'd be a big deal. But it was an even bigger deal in first century Israel. As I said earlier, weddings lasted seven days. This party was severely threatened, being stopped early. But even more significant, this was a, an honor and shame culture. An honor and shame culture. Right? The groom's family was expected to provide the wine to ensure it was a great feast. And if the wine ran out, the family's honor was at stake. And it would be remembered as that wedding, whose family, you fill in the family's last name, that family was short on wine. So Jesus' mother turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, Jesus isn't being rude and disrespectful. When he says woman, which we most, we can certainly comes across as rude today. Don't try that uh, today. <laughs> Jesus is simply saying, Mom, it's not my time yet. It, he says, my hour has not yet come. If you've been with us in this series, you've heard us say that in the Gospels, when, when the Gospel writers use the hour, it's speaking about Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus knows he's the Messiah, that he's the joy bringer, that he is the one who brings the fine-aged wine who will usher in a new world full of joy. And he also knows in order to do this, he will have to die. And at this wedding, Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into the finest wine to erase the shame of this family, to uphold their good name. And through faith in a crucified Jesus, he removes our shame. And we're given a new name and we receive a new identity as beloved children of God. Shame is tied to identity. 
You have to ask yourself, what do you look to? Where do you look for value, meaning, and significance? And whatever this is will be the source of your shame. In times that you feel like you're crushing it and whatever it might be, you're going to become self-inflated and filled with pride. And in the times that you feel like you're missing it, you'll become self-defeated and filled with shame. So what do you look to? In 2011, Jim Clifton, the CEO of Gallup, claimed that Gallup discovered the single and most clarifying fact as they discovered what 7 billion people across the globe really want. You know what the answer is? A job. Clifton said the desire for a good job is the current will of the world. And whether or not you have a good job defines your relationship with your city, your country, and the whole world around you. So are you looking to your job for your identity? Maybe it's your marital status to get married, or, or maybe you have a, a lot of pride in being single and you don't want to be married. Or if you're married, maybe your identity is tied to having the best marriage and you compare your marriage against other people's marriages and your significance is found in how well you're doing. Maybe you look to your bank account, how much money you have, or maybe it's pride in how much you don't really care about money. You're free from money. Maybe it's your sense of style and dress or your education or your body and your image, your health, or how much you read the Bible or how much you do for the Lord as a good Christian. I don't know what it is, but I'm here to tell you whatever it is, the wine always runs out. The wine of a good job, of money, of family, of clothes, the wine of being the funniest, the prettiest, the nicest, the best Christian, it all runs out. And if we look to any of these things for identity, when the wine runs out, we will experience deep shame. And Jesus is providing the wine of this wedding to erase the shame. And he's declaring he's the only one that can give us true and lasting identity. He is the only one who will never fail. He is the one who provides what our hearts most long for, love, acceptance, belonging, and significance. And did you catch who gets the credit for the new wine in verses 9 to 10? The groom. Now, the one whose family is responsible for running out of wine is credited with the provision of the best wine. The one who ruined the party gets credit for what Jesus did to save the party. This is what Christianity is all about. We often put our hope and trust in many things that fail and we pursue them and they don't give us what we need and we find ourselves full of shame. But by faith in Christ, he erases our shame and we get credit for all that he has done. His perfect life of obedience, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, new life are all given to us. And in Christ, we receive the joy of salvation. Jesus is dealing with shame. That's not all he's dealing with in his first sign. He's also dealing and pointing to forgiveness and cleansing. Look at verses 6 to 7. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the, to the brim. Jesus could have used any container at the party, but he chooses the jars for Jewish rites of purification. He deliberately chooses the jars that were used for ceremonial washing. Jews would use these jars to go to temple worship and wash themselves with the water 
and symbolizing the need that they felt they had for their hearts to be cleansed, to, to remove their sin and make them clean. In this miracle, Jesus is declaring his glory by saying that in him, all the old ceremonial and sacrificial laws of cleansing are done away with. And now through Jesus and his once and for all final sacrifice on the cross, we are forgiven and made clean of all of our sins. Now, I know in our day when we talk about sin and forgiveness, it can sometimes feel like it goes over our head. But I was uh, listening to a pastor friend of mine recently talking about his interaction with his daughter. And, and he said she had the flu and the strep throat at the same time. She was just miserable uh, and, and felt sick for a long period of time. She didn't get out of, out of her pajamas. She didn't take a bath for, for the whole week. And one day near the end of her sickness, she said, Daddy, I, I don't feel like a princess anymore. And he said he didn't know what to do and how to respond and that his heart just was crushed. He said he pulled himself together and he asked her what she meant. And she said, Daddy, I don't feel shiny and clean. I need a bath. And so they gave her a bath and it helped. And he said that his six-year-old daughter had no idea but that she was vocalizing and verbalizing the struggle of all people. The struggle until we die or until Jesus comes back. The struggle of feeling dirty and unclean. That we all feel dirty from some past sin or some struggle, something you can't forget. And Jesus is revealing we don't clean ourselves. We can't. There are no more ceremonial washings. We don't clean ourselves up and come to Jesus. We come to Jesus dirty and unclean, and he alone forgives our sin and makes us clean. Jesus offers true joy erasing our shame, giving us new identity, forgiving our sin, and making us clean. And to do this, it cost Jesus his life. His hour would come, and instead of drinking wine, Jesus would drink the cup of wrath. He would take on himself the sins of the world and the punishment for sin so that you and I could drink the cup of joy. Dr. Edmund Clowney said this about the wedding in Cana. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of this wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. That in Jesus, we can sit amidst the broken and tragic world, experiencing the sorrows of this world, and drink joy. Because joy is different than happiness. The joy that I'm talking about is not based on circumstances. The joy that Jesus offers is something that can be experienced when the trials and tragedies of life strike us. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful but always rejoicing. I recently finished the Netflix documentary, Quarterbacks. Some of you have seen this inside look of three NFL quarterbacks, Marcus Mariota, Patrick Mahomes, and Kirk Cousins. And one of the most powerful scenes is with Kirk Cousins, who... He's a Christian, and surprisingly, Netflix didn't shy away from kind of exposing his faith and trust in Christ. And one of the last episodes shows Kirk Cousins, who had had an incredible year in the NFL. The Vikings were hot going into the playoffs, and they lose in the first round of the playoffs to the New York Giants. And the episode ends after Cousins is crushed by the loss, and it ends. I don't know if Netflix knew they were doing this or not. 
the, the episode ends having experienced this tragic loss to him singing to his son at bedtime. And he's singing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Any pursuit of joy outside of Jesus is ever elusive. But the joy Jesus offers is given to us, and it's not based on circumstances, but it's based on what we receive in Christ alone. And I'm also not talking about joy as personality and temperament. Some of you here, you just kind of have more upbeat personality than others. Others more melancholic. Right? The joy that Jesus offers is not like a dopamine hit to the brain. It's not a joy that comes in some moment of exhilaration. It's true joy that comes as we tap into the source. A real, living, communing relationship with Christ. It comes as we wake up each and every day and we put our feet on the ground as we get out of bed and we remind ourselves this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. For today I am a beloved daughter and son of God. Today I am forgiven. Each day we wake up and we say whatever this day holds, I will rejoice. It's my shame and guilt are dealt with. And I'm in communion with the one who drank the cup of wrath so that I could drink the cup of joy. We can be filled with joy if we're single, divorced, in a disappointing marriage, if we're without a job, or if we're in a disappointing job, if friendships aren't what they should be, if our children aren't, aren't as we hoped they would be, if church isn't what it should be. Life is disappointing. The wine runs out. We can hold the hurt and pain and sadness of this world while being filled with joy because we are in a relationship with Jesus. And what Jesus is declaring in this first miracle, in this first sign, is the assurance of what the Song of Solomon says, that he brought me to the banqueting house, to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. And as we experience Christ in this way, we are filled with joy. Let's pray. Well, God, I ask that you would draw us to yourself yet again in fresh ways. That we might be filled with the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.